the whole wide world. You're listening to the spectacular and awesome Globalization Cafe hosted by none other than me, Dr. Reza Timosina from the prestigious high school of Ross Shepherd. Today, on this podcast, I'll be answering the question, to what extent does globalization contribute to sustainable prosperity for all people? And also, today on this podcast, I'll be presenting a report to the United Nations themselves on the impact of economic globalization, and I'll also be including a proposal on legislation that I feel that the United Nations should pass in order to ensure sustainable prosperity for all people. Alright, let the show begin, boys. Okay, first, I'll answer the question. What is economic globalization? Since most of you guys probably don't have, like, an in-depth understanding of economic globalization. Economic globalization is a spread of trade, transportation, and communication systems around the world in the interests of promoting worldwide commerce. It refers to the increasing interdependence of the world economy as a result of the growing scale of cross-border trade of commodities and services, the flow of international capital, and the wide and rapid spread of technologies. It reflects the continuing expansion and the mutual integration of market frontiers, and it is an irreversible trend for the economic development in the whole wide world at the turn of the millennium. Alright, now I'll be talking about sustainable prosperity, what it is, and I'll also throw in some interesting facts about sustainable prosperity to I don't know to like to make this podcast not boring all right so let's get to business what is sustainable prosperity sustainable prosperity is a practicing of stewardship of the environment and resources so that future generations are able to achieve prosperity I believe no not I believe sustainable prosperity is basically saying that basically says that there's an intelligent way for everyone to have ample sufficiency as well as abundance which is prosperity in the vital and meaningful areas of life and to have this prosperity sustained over the long term the sustainable development goals were born at the united nations conference on sustainable development in rio rio de janeiro in 2012 the objective was to create a set of universal goals that meet the urgent political uh, okay that meet the urgent political and economic challenges facing our world sustainable development goals replaced replaced the millennium development goals which started a global effort in the 2000s to tackle the indignity of poverty millennium development goals established measurable and universally agreed objective for tackling extreme poverty and hunger, preventing deadly diseases and expanding 
and, and expanding primary education to all children, among other development priorities. For 15 years, the Millennium Development Goals drove progress in several important areas, such as reducing, reducing income poverty. Okay, reducing income poverty, providing much needed access to water and sanitation, driving down child mortality rates, and drastically improving maternal health. They also kickstarted a global movement for free primary education, inspiring countries to invest in their future generations. Most significantly, the Millennium Development Goals made huge strides in combating in combating HIV slash AIDS and other treatable diseases such as malaria and tuberculosis. And now I'll tell you some interesting facts about interesting facts and achievements that the Millennium Development Goals were able to tackle and show us that the Millennium Development Goals actually work. So for example, more than 1 billion people were lifted out of extreme poverty since the 1990s. <coughs> Excuse me, I'm really sick. Okay. Second thing, child mortality dropped by more than a half since the 1990s because of the Millennium Development Goals. The number of the number of out of school children has dropped by more than a half since since, since 1990, and the HIV slash infections fell by more than fell by almost 40 percent since the 2000s. All right, I hope you found those facts interesting, and I hope like you're really happy about what the what the Millennium Development Goals were able to achieve because it is truly amazing what they were able what they were able to achieve and like how they benefited the world in a tremendous way. Okay. Moving on to sustainable prosperity, like more information about sustainable prosperity. <coughs> okay. Okay. I'm gonna have a sip of water real quick because I'm dying. So, principles of sustainable, okay, principles of sustainable prosperity are necessary evolutionary adaptations for our current economic, social, and political systems. These adaptations will help humanity both thrive and overcome the realities of Earth's diminishing resources, as well as the challenges of supporting humanity's exponentially rising population. <coughs> The new sustainable prosperity adaptations are critical to resolving global warming and its consequent climate destabilization. These principles are derived from evolution's time-proven rules for sustaining success in an individual group, in an individual group or system. If humanity wishes to go on as a species, the collective principles and actions of sustainable prosperity will need to be embraced globally all right okay okay now moving on to what are some aspects what are some aspects of modern economic globalization okay okay so 
Well, rapid the rapid globalization of the world's economies in the recent years is largely based on the rapid development of science and technologies, which has resulted from the environment in which market economies, in which market economics, in which market economic systems have been f just have been fast spreading throughout the world and has developed on the basis of increasing cross-border division of labor that has been penetrating down to the level of production chains within the enterprises of different companies. The advances, the advancements, the advancements in science and technologies has greatly reduced the costs of transportation and communication, making economic globalization possible. Okay, so for instance, today's ocean shipping cost is only half of that in the year of 1930. Half, like half. The cost in half that is a great decrease in price which allows globalization and economic globalization to thrive okay the current air freight only one-sixth of the price it was before and telecommunications only a mere one percent of the cost that it was before like imagine the, like look at these numbers they're like one-sixth of the price it was that's so low and like telecommunications only one percent of what it was before like one percent that's so low like just it's mind-boggling how the prices have went so down and plummeted like it's actually mind-boggling it's actually mind-boggling like yeah okay and the price of computers in the 1990s was only one and one one twenty-fifth of the number of of that in 1960 so the price of computers in 1990 is was basically like I don't even know 125% more no, no 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 okay so the price of computers in 1990 was only 1 125th of that in 1990 and this price level in 1990 reduced again by 80% so that that was probably confusing as heck so I'll try to break it down for you. So the price of computers in, in 1990 was really low. Like it was like 0.01% of the price it was before, right? And now, and in 1998, the price again reduced by 80. So like 0.01% reduced by 80% again. So just imagine the like plummeting price, like it's so, it's so mind boggling, you know? It's so mind boggling, All right? These kind of price drops of technological advancements greatly reduce the cost of international trade and investment, thus making it possible to organize and coordinate global production. Okay, I'll give you a good example. I'll give you a good example of like, um, like a global production chain that the company Ford has, like the car company Ford. So Ford's Lyman car is designed in Germany. So the car is designed in Germany, right? The gearing system is produced in Korea, like Germany and Korea. You see how far they are? The pump for the car is made in the USA. So Germany, Korea, and USA. Like, it's so, so weird. Like, it's all over the place. It's weird and confusing, but this is what economic globalization has done. Like, production chains have, like, spidered it's basically like a spider web all around the web that are the, the webs are interconnected 
to all one company <coughs> okay and so the car is designed in germany the gearing system is made in korea the pump in the usa and the engine in australia it is exactly the type it is exactly this it is exactly like the technological advancements that has made this type of global production possible so like the cost of shipping prices like the cost of the reduction the reduction in the cost of shipping prices and air freight these are like the type of technological advancements technological advancements that has made like this type of production possible like the Ford's Lyman's cars possible like it has like companies in Germany Korea USA and Australia all which are all interconnected and ship parts like to each other so they can actually build a full car so it's actually so amazing you know it actually like it like blows my mind all right <coughs> what are some historical events that have impacted modern globalization so some historical events that have um, impacted modern globalization are like the GATT the general the general agreement on tariffs and trade so like for example the GATT was signed in October 1947 to liberalize trade to create an organization to administer mode to to administer more liberal trade agreement and to establish a mechanism for resolving trade off disputes resolving trade disputes and a major trend for the past 25 years has been the creation and growth of free market zones among nations agreeing to form regional trade blocks okay so some the most significant free trade zones are for example the EU the North American Free Trade Agreement NAFTA which has recently been um, abandoned and renamed to modified and renamed to the renamed as the USMCA which is the United States Mexico and Canada agreement and another example is the Association of South e Southeast Asian Nations ASEAN get it Asian ASEAN Associate of Southern Asian Nations ASEAN it's actually so cool all right so international economic organ okay international economic organizations include okay so the World Bank the WBO the World Bank which in full is um, the World Bank group is an international organization affiliated with the United Nations and it is designed to finance products that enhance the economic developments of member states and the member states are like I don't know a lot of people I don't I, I don't actually know how many people are in the how many um, countries are in the UN but I'll search that up for you because I'm a nice guy countries in the UN let me search that up real quick okay so um okay it's just 50 it's oh it's actually 193 members so yeah i just i just told you a fact I'm like it's an awesome fact like you just you just you just got some information from me like this podcast is actually so awesome all right so the un was found uh so the wbo or the world bank was founded in 1944 and the un monetary and financial conference commonly known as the brentwood wood conference brent brenton woods conference which is which was convened to establish a new 
post-war, pro, post-World War II international economic system, and the World Bank officially began operations in June 1946. It's the, so the, the loans, the, the, like the initial loans of the WBO were geared towards post-war reconstruction of Western Europe, which was absolutely devastated by World War II. And beginning in the mid-1950s, played a major role in financing investments in infrastructure projects, in infrastructure projects in the development countries, including roads, hydroelectric dams, um, hydroelectric dams, water and sewage facilities, maritime ports, and airports. Okay, another uh, another uh, international organization is the IMF, which is in short for the International Monetary Fund is an organization of 189 countries so it is four it has four less countries than the uh, WBO interesting fact right there um, working to foster global monetary corporation secure financial stability facilitate international trade promote high employment and sustainable economic growth and also reduce poverty around the world Okay, so the rise and expansion, of t- the rise and expansion of TNCs, a t- a transnational company. Okay, a TNC is a transnational company. You probably know that. So a TNC is a company based in one country while developing manuf- while developing and manufacturing products or delivering its goods and services in more than one country. Also called a multinational corporation. A transnational company is a multinational corporation. Um, that operates in at least two countries. So the minimum to for, for so for a country to qualify as transnational, it has to operate in a minimum of two countries. Globalization has allowed for many businesses to set up and buy operations in other countries. Transnational companies invest in other countries by buying factories or shops, and this is called an inward investment. So the headquarters and research, the headquarters and research and development, um, abbreviated to R. R&D are departments often located in the country of origin or the home country while the production tends to be overseas. However, as the company grows and becomes more global, regional headquarters and regional um, um, research and development centers will be developed in manufacturing areas also. Many transnational companies are developed countries such as the U.S. and U.K. They are from developed countries such as the U.S. and the U.K. They coordinate and control economic activities in different countries and also develop trade within and between units of the same corporation in different countries. Transnational companies tend to exploit least de- least developed countries and less and less developed least development country least developed countries and less developed countries for cheap raw material, cheap labor supply in other developed countries for good transport. Um, access to markets where goods are sold and friendly government policies. There is a wide range of these global companies in primary, secondary, and territory activities. This idea, the idea that the idea is that international trade and investment will turn to lower countries' costs and environmental policies, which more easily, when these countries become more entre- integra- integrated into the world economy, to attract investment. Countries open their markets, but due to international competition, they're tempted to relax labor, environmental, and tax regulations at the at the detriment of social policies and 
and which results to the race in the race to the bottom. The race to the bottom basically meaning the like the race to lower environmental standards. So transnational companies will actually invest in your country because the environmental standards and the labor standards, whatever they're low. So it's like it's cheaper and they can they can just ship the goods they can just ship the goods overseas and sell them sell them for like I don't know ten times the profit. That's actually so it's actually so mind boggling, you know? You know what I mean? Alright. So what are some philosophers ideas that have impacted modern economic globalization? So a modern like a philosopher like so Frederick Frederick Hayek is a good example of a philosopher that has impacted modern economic globalization. So Frederick Hayek believed that the prosperity of society was driven by creativity, entrepreneurship, and innovation, which were only possible in a society with free markets. He attacked socialism, believing it would invariably lead to central planning. When it comes to technological development, he argued, no progress can be made unless people are allowed to move into more unexpected areas and learn from their mistakes. In his view, markets create the pr- markets create the price signals and set incentives to orientate the economy more efficiently. Hayek preferred most activities to stay in private hands. He did nonetheless see the need for a limited role for the government to perform tasks in which the markets were incapable of, such as. <coughs> These tasks included um, outlawing poisonous substances and preventing crime, but also providing a basic, uh, also providing a basic safety net through a comprehensive system of social insurance. For Hayek, economic freedom was intimately connected to individual liberty. Central planning, central planning, he argued, was inherently undemocratic. The will of a small number of high-ranking individuals is imposed on the populace, and as a consequence, individual freedoms are sacrificed. Hayek's view was that because the planners in such economy take all the all the decisions, individuals cannot decide for themselves what to produce, how much to make, and what price to sell for. In a planned economy, prices and quantities are set by central planners, individuals, and individuals have no choice but to participate in a plan that they have no say in creating. Jobs, moreover, are often centrally allocated in such a system. Hayek argued that such an abandonment of individualism leads not only to a loss of freedom and a creation of an op- oppressive society, but also ultimately to totalitarianism. Totalitarianism. I don't know how to pronounce that. T O T A L I T A R I A N I S M. Totalitarianism. Sorry, that's that's the best I can do because English is not my native language. And uh, to totalitarianism, with individuals trapped in a state of serfdom like in the dark ages like serfdom in france okay so another popular uh philosopher that has impacted modern globalization is milton friedman so milton friedman was an american economist and tactician best known for having best 
best known for having his having strong beliefs in the free market capitalism believe that people need to be able to look after themselves when times get tough and learn not to rely on the government. He thought that the ability of people to buy from whoever they wanted, to sell to whoever they wanted, and to work for whomever they wanted was a system that also provided the best chance for prosperity. During his time as a professor in the University of Chicago, Friedman developed numerous free market theories that opposed the views of traditional Keynesian which is, which is the theory of economics formulated by John Maynard Keynes economics, economics, um, economists. Friedman argued for free trade, smaller government, and a slow but steady increase of money supply in a growing environment, in a growing economy. I mean, the the pop the pop the popularity popularity of Friedman attracted other free market thinkers to the University of Chicago, giving rise to an anti-Keynesian coalition referred to as the Chicago School of Economics. Okay, so another uh, popular philosophical philosopher that is impacting modern globalization is John Maynard Keynes, which was the founder of the Keynesian theory that I was talking about before. So John Maynard Keynes was an early 20th century British economist known as the father of Keynesian economics. Keynes is the economist who is credited with pushing for more government regulation in the economy. His belief was that people should spend money in a recession and then save money in the economic boom. Keynes argued that when people lost jobs due to depression, that it was the government's responsibility to create more employment so that people would have more money to spend, which would generate demand and kickstart the economy again. His belief that he believed that the government could and should influence the economy to flatten business cycles revolutionized economic theory. Keynes advocated for increased government expenditures and lower taxes to simulate demand and pull and to simulate demand and pull the global economy out of recession, such as the Great Depression. Okay. privatization and foreign investment so what is trade liberalization for those you don't, for those of you that you don't know for, for those that do not know so trade liberalization is a process that involves countries that is a process that involves countries reducing um, or removing trade barriers such as tariffs and quotas so that goods and services can move around the world more freely 
trade has contributed to lifting hundreds and millions of people around the world out of poverty. And developing and emerging economies are playing a more important role today in trade than ever before, contributing to the declining inequality among countries. Though always, though not always within countries, trade has been trade has delivered unprecedented access to goods and services, with a revolution in the availability of goods for low-income households. They take the cost of purchasing a television ship, television set, for example, between ninety-eight between nineteen eighty and two thousand fourteen, the price of a roughly comparable TV set fell by 73% in part as a result of the ambitious trade liberalization efforts and smart television sets we buy today are vastly better than those available in the 1980s. Lower prices are partially beneficial, are particularly beneficial for poor households which, who spend relatively more on heavily traded products, for example, staples such as food and garments. Not only does trade liberalization lower prices, it also provides jobs for millions of people around the world. For example, in a large country like the U.S. or the United States, around the 10% around 10% of the workforce is involved in producing goods and services that are exported and consumed abroad, which amounts to around 14 million American jobs, which is actually a quite astounding number. The share goes up to 20 for France, almost 30 for Germany, and 47 for a small open economy like Ireland. Alright, now I'll be talking about uh, NAFTA. So NAFTA has quadrupled trade between... Okay, so the case study. The case study for uh, trade liberalization is NAFTA. So NAFTA has quadrupled the trade between... So quadruple trade. So between 1993 and 2018, trade between the three NAFTA members, the U.S., Canada, and Mexico, has quadrupled from 297 billion to 1.23 trillion because of a NAFTA-like the agreement that liberalizes that liberalizes trade. It's actually such a huge increase in trade. Like it's absolutely mind-boggling, you know. This is what trade liberalization, trade liberalization, has the potential to do. Like, I'd say it has the potential to vastly increase countries' GDP and like exports and imports. Like, it's awesome. Um, so quadruple trade from two ninety two ninety seven billion to one point two three trillion, and it also boosted economic growth, profits, and jobs for all three countries. The NAFTA agreement and it also lowered prices for consumers so it basically benefits everyone benefits everyone well, except the environment you know yeah everything else you know it's, it benefits so lowered prices the NAFTA also contributed to lowered prices so lower tariffs and the lowered tariffs also reduced import prices and NAFTA lowered food prices much in the same way so the U.S. So, for example, the U.S. Census reports that the food billion, the food imports total around 50 billion, 2017, up to, up from 33 billion, 2008. As a result, NAFTA lowered the prices of food imports by nearly 5.3 billion annually. That's
that's astounding. Like, so more people have access to food, which in turn contributes to sustainable prosperity for everyone. So trade liberalization actually contributes to uh, sustainable prosperity. Nice link. All right, so now my opinion on privatization. So privatization, what is privatization? Privatization describes the process by which a company, which by which a piece of property or business goes from being owned, goes from being government to owned to being privately owned. Generally, um, privatization generally helps governments save money and increase efficiency where private companies move goods quicker and more efficiently. And some, of po some opposers of privatization suggest basic services such as education shouldn't be subject to market forces. So my case study for privatization is the privatization of water. Um, so the privatization case study in Kohamba, Bolivia. So in March and February, in February and March of 2000, in, in 2000 in Cocham, Cochabamba, Cochabamba, Bolivia, um, in response to the skyrocketing, in response to the sky, okay, so many people's, okay, so in March and in February and March of 2000, in the, in the year 2000, protests, protests broke out in Cochabamba, Bolivia, because the skyrocketing, skyrocketing prices of water. Many people saw their bills triple and even quadruple just weeks after an U.S. del Tunari, a private company owned by the London-based multinational international water, um, LTD, took over the city's water system. So basically, the city's water system was publicly owned, so owned by the government, there, and it and it got privatized. So for thousand families, the rate hike meant that like half their monthly income were just just went to paying income. It's like because the private company like raised the interest on water so high that like water bills actually took a half their half their monthly bills. It's insane. So unable to survive these conditions, the, the citizens demanded that the water the water contract between like the private company and the government be terminated. And after suffering civil rights abuses, injuries, and even death at the hands of police and military, the protesters the protesters were heard and their water rights were restored. All right. So what is so what is my opinion on foreign investment? Well, going back to uh, going back to uh, privatization, I believe that privatization can help the government um, efficiently like move goods efficiently uh, move goods quicker and more efficiently but I believe that only some services can be privatized and others cannot such as education and water like those are basic life needs for people right and it's not good if it's privatized because the prices are gonna go up and the, the prices of basic life goods like basic life um, things like education and water will also go up so it's it's not good for the health of the country so I believe that all some aspects of the economy can be privatized others lay better on the government's hand um, where it's publicly um, where it's publicly where it's publicly owned okay so 
um, foreign investment. What is my opinion on foreign investment? So, okay. So foreign investment is the purchase of assets in one country by individual institutions or governments in another country. Foreign investment involves involves capital flow from one country to another, granting extensive ownership stakes in domestic countries and assets. So foreign investment denotes that foreigners have an active role in management as a part of their investment. A modern trend leans toward to, so um, foreign investment is like a modern trend that leans towards globalization where multinational firms have investments in all in a variety of countries. Foreign investments can be made by individuals but are also often endeavors pursued by companies and corporations with substantial assets looking to expand their reach. So as globalization increases, more and more companies have branches in countries around the world. But for some countries, opening a new manufacturing and production plant in a different country is uh, attractive because the opportunities for cheaper production labor and lower or fewer taxes. So my case study is Kurdistan. So Kurdistan is a northern region, is a is in the northern region of Iraq. And it suffer, has suffered immensely under the Iraqi dictator Saddam Hussein in the 2000s. Around 10, around 100,000 Kurdin, Kurd, Kurdish, Kurds, around 100,000 Kurds were killed by Saddam's forces, and Saddam was overthrown. After and Kurdish and the, the and Kurdistan became an autonomous region under the new Iraqi constitution, and to help correct this situation, simulate the economy of Kurdistan, the officials of Kurdistan are trying to attract foreign investment. So money is needed to rebuild homes, roads, um, hospitals, schools, hotels, and foreign investment. And the officials believe that foreign investment can help achieve all of those goals by increasing the GDP and flow of capital to the country, which I also believe to be true because foreign investment raises the GDP of one country by allowing, allowing the capital flow from one developed country to like Kurdistan, which is facing, which which are which is facing problems, you know. So, yeah. So, um, among the foreign oil companies investing in the regions in the in the region is Western Zagros, which is a wholly owned subsidiary subsidiary of Western Old Sands Gallery. So, basically, the the country owned the country. I mean. The company, um, Western Oil Sands of Calgary, basically for invested in a foreign country, which is Kurdistan, and basically um, raised the GDP and raised the raised the living standards of Kurdistan by um, increasing the GDP and in increasing the flow of capital and increasing jobs and yeah, this led to a overall increase in life. I mean, like, like. How do I explain this overall increase in sustainable prosperity and like quality of life? And yeah, okay, okay, all right. So, what are some challenges created by outsourcing? What are the challenges created by outsourcing? So, offshore outsourcing is a strategic practice in which a business hires a third party supplier to perform work in the nation other than the one in which is in which the hiring business primarily conducts its operations so for example a large multinational company may 
outsource cleaning to like an outsource out, outside cleaning firm. It also may outsource its customer call support to another country where wages are way cheaper. For example, Amazon to India. Like yeah. And if companies perform um, offshore outsourcing, they reduce jobs in their primary nation, which is like a downfall of outsourcing basically. And the standards also may be different. For example, people have said that the English, the English call centers, English of Indian call centers is more difficult to understand. So the customer perception of the company goes down as their expectations are lowered. And when you outsource, when outsourcing an individual to complete a task for the company, they're taking the risk of hiring workers without the skills to perform their jobs. And the firm, which is outsourcing, may struggle if the outsourced firm is unreliable. And potential potentially higher costs as the and um, outsourcing also basically has the potential to raise costs as the outsourced firm will require a profit margin to make it more worthwhile. So it may, it may actually be cheaper for some companies to hire employee like cleaners directly. So also impacts on reputation. So sometimes multinational companies have been criticized for outsourcing production, such as call centers to countries outside the country where it does business, Amazon. So Amazon, and um, manufacturing organizations that outsource component production or assembly to another company do not have control over the quality. So that's also a downfall. Technology makes communication easier and more accessible. There may still be issues with timely communication and outsourcing to overseas corporations may result in communication problems due to time differences and language barriers may make communication between organizations or individuals difficult as well. And um, companies may experience damage to customer perception when outsourcing call centers duties to an overseas subcontractor because the subcontractor may not have the necessary resources and information to provide the customer with a satisfactory experience. Also, um, outsourcing basically is like the exploitation of the local environment. Multinational companies or transnational companies can move production to countries with a weaker environmental standard. And it may also lead to the exploitation of workers, which is a contentious issue. Workers may look to be exploited by Western standards, but, in, but conditions and wages may be the same or better than any than many domestic injuries in the industry, which is like a trade, which is like a trade-off, I guess. And the case study that I'll be discussing the challenges of outsourcing, the challenges created by outsourcing is a job loss in the U.S. because of outsourcing. So the main negative effect of outsourcing is that it increases U.S. unemployment. So the U.S., the 14 million outdoor jobs from U.S. companies to other offshore um, countries um, are almost double the 7.5 million unemployed Americans in America. So if all those jobs return, it would be enough to also hire 5.7 million, 5.7 million, 5.7 million workers who are working part time, but would prefer would prefer full time off positions. It would basically increase um, jobs all across, like across the table, if the U.S. stopped outsourcing its duties and production to other companies.
like to other countries and companies. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, so what are opportunities created by outsourcing? So, for example, okay, so opportunity created by outsourcing lower wages for labor inst intensive stages of production. So, for example, a good example is the outsourcing of call centers from the UK to India. Wages in India are significantly lower than the UK, enabling a reduction in cost. These are this is useful for labor intensive aspects of the industry because you pay less for labor that is like hard to do, and that would be paid way more in the UK than than in the Canada and then than in than in India. So it's 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 like it's huge way to make profit and and a comparative advantage. So outsourcing gives. Business a comparative advantage. Production can be concentrated in the most efficient location, and um, they can also the company can also avoid having time to spend on worker management because so, like if you hire cleaners and if the cleaner goes on maternity leave, it is not the company's responsibility to find an alternative worker. It is the company. It is the sub. It is like the firm that is doing that is helping the country outsource it is their responsibility it's not the country's responsibility that is doing the out, um, outsourcing so it's like less less time less have you can, the company can avoid having to spend time in worker management and it can it, it, it boasts huge improvements in technology and transport because as like trade increases um out, outsourcing increases um, all like the GDP of all countries go up because um, so the GDP of countries go up because because of the improvements in technology and transport which allow for easier transport and communication and in the improvements in internet and communications mean it is easier to outsource and keep control of what is happening and outsourcing is a growing phenomenon among gun also it is a it is a growing phenomenon against among among Developing countries, there is a controversy about whether outsourcing actually benefits developing countries. Any, anyways, so, so, um, outsourcing it creates direct foreign investment, which boosts the rate of economic growth of the country. It creates employment. Outsourcing has provided a new area of employment. It benefits, um, and it, it, extra demand for workers, extra demand for workers may put upward pressure on wages in the long term. And my case study for the um, opportunities created by outsourcing is Amazon. So the global e-commerce giant Amazon has set up captive call centers in India as it continues to expand its uh, economic footprint in the country. These captive centers will handle part of Amazon's buyer and seller services both in India and worldwide. So. Um, the Amazon Captive Center will hire close to 1,000 people and basically provide 1,000 people with jobs um, for both voice and chat services and Amazon was look Amazon is looking for fresher and interdem freshers and interdem inter intermediate pass applicants pass appliance apl applicants applicants for both domestic and international support so basically, it would increase the job, increase jobs, and it would be basically, um, it would basically increase jobs in India and also the GDP of India, which is 
my complaints, which is which are great opportunities created by Hotos. And that would not be possible without Oxos. Okay. So what are the environmental impacts? What environmental impacts does outsourcing have? So over the past decade, developed countries have made major strides in reducing their greenhouse gas emissions at home, right? This trend is this trend is often held up as a sign of progress in the fight against climate change. But those efforts look a lot less impressive once you take into account, once you take trade into account. So many wealthy countries have effectively outsourced a big chunk of their carbon pollution overseas by importing more steel, cement, and other goods from factories in China and other places rather than producing it domestically. So China, which has become the world's largest emitter of CO2 carbon dioxide, remains the world's factory. So about 13% of China's emissions in 2015 came from making stuff from other countries, for other countries. So in, in India, the fast-growing emitter figures 20%, which is higher than China's 15%. And between 1995 and 2015, reports found that as wealthier, as wealthier countries like Japan and Germany were cutting their own emissions, they were also doubling or tripling the amount of carbon dioxide they outsourced to China. So in conclusion, outsourcing has devastating impacts on the environment. Wealthy countries our wealthy wealthy countries that outsource outsource films and services to less developed countries down drives down the environmental impacts of the wealthy countries. However, however, in contrast, they're just shifting their emissions away from them and releasing them somewhere, releasing them in some other country. It's not beneficial. It's actually more detrimental because as environmental standards go down, um, the the firms, the outsource firms have the ability to um, like basically the lower the environmental standards the more they can produce like the more coals the more the more coal they can burn the more fuel the, the more fossil fuel they can use which basically harms the environment and furthers climate change right so the case study I'll be talking about about the environmental impact that outsourcing has is the Joe Fresh Bangladesh incident so the Rana Plaza building collapsed in Sanivar, Bangladesh, killing more than 1,100 1, garment workers and injuring thousands more. So the Rana Plaza housed many several factories producing clothing for brands such as Good Joe Fresh, which is like a superstore brand in Canada, and the Chilton Place in Walworth. The building collapsed on Wednesday, killing at least 230 people, which many of them were poorly paid workers who were forced to keep working were forced to keep producing clothes even after police ordered an evacuation that due to the deep visible cracks in the wall like that was that was visible before the building actually cracked so the poor worker conditions like the poor workers they just have to keep they just kept working even though they saw the cracks in the wall and knew that it was going to collapse and the Canadian line Canadian clothing line Joe Fresh was among the customers among, among the customers of the garment factories operating in the building. Outsourcing films, outsourcing firms outsource the dirtier stages of production to minimize domestic environmental regulation costs, which can harm countries' environments, such as how factories for Western producing clothes in Bangladesh severely harm the environment by the destruction of factories and machines, which could lead to dangerous chemical spills onto the environment and all the, all the rubble and like all the for all the coal that is used in the production factories, it's all gone. Like the, the outsourcing causes that, and the outsourcing causes like 
huge amounts of environmental impacts um, demonstrated by this case study. So how does the knowledge economy, which is the digital divide, impact the ability to create sustainable prosperity for all our people? So, so basically the access to information and communication technologies, which is basically the opposite of the digital, which is like um, access to technology, which is access to technology enables the production, use, and transfer of knowledge in an efficient and low cost manner. Knowledge is the major factor in the knowledge is the major factor in the knowledge economy and countries that have limited access to international uh, to information and communication technologies are disadvantaged. This fun this phenomenon this phenomenon is known as a digital divide, which is basically the separating countries that have technology and the like have a lot of technology and countries that basically have no technology. Like there's a huge gap, which is called a divide. And this phenomenon is known as a digital divide and it pertains to a number of countries. So the digital divide has created a new created a new distinction basis in society that has critically influenced daily operations and the livelihood of persons and persons globally. The inability the ability to fully access the internet is creating disparity and segregations witnessed in different fields today. Differences in incomes and literacy are the most significant contributors contributors to the digital divide, but only explains only part and part of the ethnic and racial disparities in homes and work workplace workplace technology accesses. So the effect of the digital divide are immensely felt felt in the following areas education, job opportunities, communication politics, customer satisfaction, health, information, community community involvement, government, and also um, emergency information. So without internet access, it is harder to apply for jobs, get an education, stay in touch with friends and family, and also keep up with the news that affects your daily life. The digital technology is valuable because they create new opportunities to create, to connect, to inspire, to communicate, to educate, and to change the world. The deployment of, of ICT, I, ICT, which is basically uh, the abbreviation for, uh, let me think, abbreviation for access to uh, information and communication technologies, ICT. Um, the deployment of ICT uh, infrastructure across the world, across the globe, which is basically bridging the, which is bridging the digital divide will result in greater economic, social, and environmental prosperity, sustainable prosperity also. So the case study I'll be talking about for the, the digital divide is the, 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 the digital divide. Yeah, such as is the is Bangladesh. So the digital divide gap is narrowing in developed countries, but in developing countries like Bangladesh, the gap is actually widening every day. The first, the very first reason for the digital divide in Bangladesh is that the chip, the, the, the telecommunication infrastructure is def, def, is deficient. So in Bangladesh, the f telephone density is only about zero point five percent per capita, which is like, which is like, one person for like one person, I don't know, uh, actually, no, sorry. In Bangladesh, the telephone density is only about 0.5%, which is the main reason for, the, which is the main reason for the, which is the main reason for insignificant internet connection in the country. So Bangladesh is facing acute crisis of skilled computer, computer users deeply with their literacy problems. Information in the internet is designed to 
advanced technology which requires adequate, ad, adequate knowledge for the user. Moreover, over, more, moreover, overall less educated community, and Bangladesh is like an overall less educated community which who are not very computer friendly. Computer and basic literacy is, is a must to ensure the effective internet access which is critical lacking which is the which is the critical lacking of a Bangladeshi user. Simultaneously the contents of the web um, make it the contents of the web which is which are mostly English make it hard make it like hard to access for Bangladeshi people. So the bridging the digital divide will make professional will make will make professions in um, Bangladesh as it is the key for preparing individuals to live productive lives and lives that are follow that follow sustainable prosperity. Okay, so um, so digital divide basically impacts sustainable prosperity as if you as people on one side of the digital divide with a lot of technology have an advantage in school and jobs and job opportunities over the people that do not have technology which um, affects their sustainable prosperity in a negative way which should explain well yeah which is yeah okay so Has modern economic globalization impacted the environment? Okay, that's the question. That uh, that is the question I'll be answering after this ad break. So this ad break is sponsored by it's, it's sponsored by Superstore, the the company that sells Joe Fresh. Um, well, as a host. I personally believe that you should not buy Joe Fresh because of the incidents that have happened in Bangladesh in regards to their poor, poor, um, the poor regulation of environmental and factory and worker union standards and also like the environmental impacts in Bangladesh. But since they're, yeah, I, I believe that you shouldn't, you shouldn't like. saying before the ad break the question I'll be answering now is how has modern economic globalization impacted the environment so economic globalization which is partly synonymous with the rising international trade has fostered the rapid production trade and consumption of material goods in unprecedented 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 quantities this has weighted the ecological footprint of human activities around the world Globalization promotes CO2 emissions from transport, transportation, and um, globalization. As critical drivers of globalization, transport systems have multiplied, have multiplied alongside transnational and international trade. Emissions from road transport are, of course, very high, but more so within national borders. But the opening of some regional areas, such as the suppression of border controls among the EU, which I have talked before, um, has given a strong boost 
to rogue freight transport. Trans transna transnational rogue transport is an important source of CO2 emissions. So economic globalization has enabled the greater has enabled the greater has enabled greater the growth in cross border trade and investment in and in turn fostered industrial activity. This is often the major source of GHG emissions, which are greenhouse gas emissions, um, as in the case of electricity generation, which is large, which largely, which is still largely involves burning coal, oil, and derivatives. Der derivatives. Derivatives. I don't know how to pronounce that. D u e r i v a t e s. And the in the intensification of globalization then accentuated the greenhouse effect and global warming. Globalization encourages deforestation. Deforestation is an indirect but very significant cause of the greenhouse effect. Cleaning the clearing and logging reduces the volume of CO2 that plants convert into oxygen. This translates into an equivalent increase in the volume of CO2 in the atmosphere and thus adds to the greenhouse effect. Deforestation is known due to the conversion of forest into agricultural land, especially in developing countries, which in turn raises CO2 levels, further furthering global warming and in turn harming the environment. The case study I'll be talking about for uh, how does modern economic globalization impact the environment, impact the environment is in Indonesia and deforestation. So in Indonesia, so Indonesia is the largest producer and exporter of palm oil worldwide, and in 2014. Palm oil production from Indonesia was around 33 million metric tons. 58% of worldwide needs of palm oil fulfilled by oil production in India. 58% of worldwide need of palm oil is fulfilled by oil production in India. And increasing the amount of palm oil production is driven by global demands, which is globalization. So the impacts of palm oil plantation, the, the expansion of palm oil plantations has direct impact on deforestation. And since deforestation is bad, the expansion of palm oil is also bad. Like I have talked, like I have talked before about why deforestation is bad. And since 1990 up to 2000, 2015, approximately 34 million hectares of forests in Indonesia, in, in Indonesia have been lost, and 40 percent have been transported into oil plant, oil palm plantations, and in June 2000, in July 2015, the Greenpeace noted that the destruction creates conditions that are vulnerable and have triggered many forest fires and peatlands in Indonesia. And in September and October 2015, daily greenhouse emissions from forest fires in Indonesia have exceeded the daily emissions in the United States. It goes to show you why deforestation, and which is which, which is directly connected to uh, um, the economic globalization, harms the environment. Okay, what are some different perspectives on land and resource use, including including one's spiritual relationship to land and stewardship? Okay, so so a deep and okay, so the, the two different perspectives I'll be discussing today is the European perspective on land and the First Nation perspective on land. So I'll start with the First Nation perspective. So a deep and genuine relationship with the Earth has long been a central tenet of. First Nation worldviews and philosophy. For countless generations, the First Nations and Inuit people have had unique, respectful, unique, respectful, and sacred tribes to the land that sustained them. They do not claim ownership of the earth. 
but rather declare declare a sense of stewardship towards the land and all of its creatures all, all of its creatures all of its creatures this sense of responsibility toward the land is more than a mental one or even an emotional obligation it is tied intrinsically to the spirit that, spirit that they breathe in a strong communion with the spirit of all aspects of the earth provides a unique perceptual lens through which all activities of daily life become an expression of the spirit and since time immemorial first nations have had an intricate respectful spiritually and physically dependent grateful and protective tie to the land the nature of this tie is not so much to do with ownership like um but one to do with stewardship and they feel that they have been bestowed with the responsibility for the land and sea and all the creatures that inhabit the land with them or sea and all the creatures in the sea whereas europeans land or european land ownership is centered around control and indigenous notions are based on stewardship and when first europeans and when europeans first came to north america they sometimes discarded disregarded traditional land tenure and simply seized land or they accom accommodated accommodated traditional land tenures by recognizing its uh, recognizing its aboriginal or aboriginal claims so today i'll be the case study that i'll be discussing is the bc pipeline line debate so indigenous protesters in canada have called a growing police presence near the makeshift checkpoint as an act of war as tension mounts between over a stalled pipeline project in the northern in northern british columbia in defiant act in, in, a, in defiance of a court order dozens of protesters protest dozens of first nation protesters have gathered on the logging road nearby nearby west vancouver to block the construction of a natural gas pipeline the company has previously said that um it has support of all the elected indigenous leaders uh, of all the elected indigenous um leaders among the proposed route but the the chiefs the her the hereditary the hereditary chiefs have signaled that they do not support the project and argue that the elected band leaders that the elected band leaders are not in a position to negotiate with the company they're not the title holders or the care traders of the land the hereditary chiefs are said one said one first nation in an interview so basically um there's basically a th this is basically like europe european view versus first nation view all over again so First Nations um, have been given the land by the BC government, right? And so um, the First Nations own the land, the hereditary, the hereditary um, clan leaders own the land. And they do not, they do not want the pipeline to be built. However, um, the elected band leaders, which are different from the hereditary band leaders, um, already uh, signed a deal with the company to make the, to make um, the pipeline, like to, to make the proposal of the pipeline come true so um i believe that the first nations are not in the wrong in this one because the, hered the hereditary leaders are the rightful owners of the land and the european worldview should not be imposed on them once more like dozens of times it has been in the past So, what are some dis what are some different perspectives on land and resource use, including one's spiritual relationship to land? Oh, I just answered that question. What am I doing? 
Um, so the answer I'll be the question I'll be answering right now is what policies and actions should be taken in regards to resource development. So the Kyoto Protocol is is an action that was taken against resource development. So the Kyoto Protocol. What is the Kyoto Protocol? The Kyoto Protocol is an international agreement linked to the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change, which commits its parties by settling by setting international binding emissions reduction targets internationally binding emission reduction targets. Under the protocol, countries must meet their targets primarily through their um, national groups. So basically, um, the Kyoto Protocol was basically disbanded recently in like 2015. And as Canada, Canada like as the US and China left, um, Canada bailed out too, saying that if the US and China are not in the protocol then what is the point because they're the largest carbon emitters and there's no point in competing with them as their their carbon emissions combined is more than all the world so there's basically no point and so another uh, another uh, policy in action that was taken against resource development is the Paris Agreement so the Paris Agreement was an agreement in the United Nations framework of Convention on Climate Change dealing with greenhouse gas emissions mitigation adaptation financing starting in the year 2020. All right, so I believe uh, I believe that um, the resource development in recent years has skyrocketed, right? Because of the trade globalization and because of all the things I've talked in this hour-long podcast, I've talked about in this hour-long podcast, which I which I hope you found interesting because I worked really hard on this and so I believe that uh, carbon I believe that uh, the greenhouse gases greenhouse gases I mean like the companies like the developed countries around the world should should um, work on um, um, reducing greenhouse gases and carbon emissions because because without reducing carbon emissions and greenhouse gases we cannot create a sustainable prosperity for the future and our future generations, which can lead, which will lead to really bad, which will lead to really bad effects in the future. All right, so the proposal on legislation that I think the United Nations should pass in order to ensure sustainable prosperity for all people is that I believe that um, the United Nations should, um, um, should like, they should like help no they should like convince they should they should basically propose that uh propose the reduction of household energy use in in most developed countries by turning off all all appliances and lights that you're not using and maybe like increasing energy and installing energy efficient appliances or maybe even using a program of a thermostat that lowers and raises the temperature when you're not home. So basically reducing household energy will, um, which I, I, be, I believe that it will greatly increase our sustainable prosperity and um, that I think the United Nations should pass to greatly increase our sustainable prosperity and to help our future generations um, prosper, sustainable sustainable prosper that like they should sustainably prosper sustainably prosper yeah 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 and yeah that is all for the podcast i'm really tired it's 12 o'clock and yeah
Dr. Reason Timmy Sina from the prestigious high school of Ross Shepard signing off and the United Nations. I really hope you take my proposal. You take my proposal into account. I hope you take this report seriously, even though this was my first time recording a podcast. So it was actually kind of hard. My, my throat hurts. And yeah, yeah. That's it. Dr. Reason Team, Reason Timmy Sina from the prestigious Ross Shepard High School signing off.